Welcome to the Finance and Investments Student Association's FISA Fireside Chats with Matthew and Oliver. Welcome back, everyone, to the FISA Fireside Chat. Uh, we're super excited today to have an amazing guest with us, Mark Connor, uh, head of research as at 3IQ, a cryptocurrency firm. So not every day do we see someone like with such an interesting background, Mark. Uh, we're super happy to super happy to have you on the on the podcast today. Uh, welcome, welcome aboard. Thanks a lot, Olivier. I really appreciate it having you and Matthew uh, ask me to come in here. It it helps me figure out what I am doing for a living and um, did I make the right choices. So it's always a good time for a little introspection when we have a, a podcast like this. So thanks. Well, Mark, we know we know your background is extremely eventful. You know you've been in a lot of different places throughout your career. We can't wait to get get started uh, and touch on that a little bit. But first. You know what, what? What stands out right away is looking at your background, starting starting off in school at the University of Virginia as an English major, and ending up where you are today. So, why don't you give us a little a little bit more color on that? Great, thanks, Matthew. Uh, so, I, I grew up in a little town called Bronxville, New York, just outside New York City, and I was in college in the uh, mid to late eighties, and. I had a good opportunity to do internships because our town had people with different backgrounds. So I spent a summer, um, one summer at an advertising agency. I, I was creative. As you said, I'm an English major. And so I was drawn by the idea of ideas. So I did the summer and I found it very boring. It wasn't full of ideas. It was actually sitting in a cubicle and crunching numbers, um, not much engagement. So the next summer I, went and uh, talked to someone who worked on a trading floor, like uh, which I visited, looked interesting. So the reason why I ended up in finance is because I had a great summer on Solomon Brothers trading floor in 1986, which was a pretty eventful summer. Um, and in fact, we'll tie it back to um, what it has to do with Sam Bankman Freed, but there's a little bit of connection there. Um, and what I loved about the environment is, although it wasn't English literature, um, and I am an English major, I'm also competitive. I played sports. Um, I like uh, camaraderie. And the trading floor had it. So for me, it was environment. And it was fast-paced, which I enjoyed. It had activity. And it had banter. So then I had to learn the language uh, of finance and bonds. And that was obviously... A tall order, but that's what drew me into finance, and that's why I'm in digital assets, Bitcoin, Ethereum today. It's uh, it's fast paced. It's very similar. I'm missing the locker room or the trading floor, but hopefully we'll bring uh, that back over time. Yeah, that's an amazing, uh, amazing path. And not everyone, not every time do we see something going from an English literature background to the the bond floor, but that's definitely something interesting. And I think you've got a lot of great experiences. Uh, on your CV, just by looking at LinkedIn, that's something very impressive. And we'd like to kind of walk through your career with you and understand what uh, what led you to change different uh, different firms and what type of decision did you have to make. So, could you give us maybe a little background of where you start your career and maybe go from there? And we'll uh, we'll dive into the different types of jobs that you had because there's there's a lot of interesting stuff to uh, to discover here. Sure. Thanks. Um, so I. Uh, after the internships, I uh, my first job at a college was uh, in finance, was working at Dean Witter Reynolds. It was uh, down the World Trade Center. 
and it was on a big trading floor, um, more retail oriented, less institutional, but it was the same idea. Learn the language, understand bond mass, understand um, different markets like risk, understand uh, the client, what their needs are, understand the regulatory environment, all these different factors. And um, most importantly, what I figured out on that desk is that even though someone has the same jersey on you, they don't play like they're on the same team. And so what I mean by that is we were in New York and we were managing 30 of us taking calls from over uh, probably five, maybe 1,200 retail offices all over the country. These are retail brokers handling clients' money, trying to buy bonds, and they want to get the best price. So sometimes they would beat us up or try to push us or have us potentially make an error for their client or their own benefit. That's my point about same jersey, but not exactly the same incentive structures. So I had to learn quickly to know ex to um, to be specific in my language. And one of the best things I love about working on Wall Street, my wife and I talk about this, is the professionalism. When someone gives you an order to buy um, 100,000 Microsoft at the market, not held, um, then when you hear that order, you say back, okay, so you want to buy 100,000 Microsoft at the market, not held. And the person's got to say yes. So that validation, and then it's got to go in, in a written confirmation. So all those details, I thought, were a great um, proving ground for really anything I did thereafter. It was the integrity of your word. It was understanding the product because you were with the wolves. You're with people who were ready to, you know, beat you up for an extra quarter or eighth of a point. So that was my first job out. Um, and that, those are the lessons I learned about um, process, um, verifying and understanding the product. So you don't get, again, there's a lot of money involved. And sometimes people won't wait around for you to get the right answer. They'll try to what we call pick you off if you give a wrong answer. Thanks. And if maybe if we skip forward a little bit, we noticed in 2002, you actually launched a hedge fund. So I would be re really curious to hear about, you know, what that process looked like and uh, like, what are th some things that you need to consider when, la when launching a fund, raising, raising capital, you know, developing your strategy, uh, et cetera. Yeah. So that, that's a good jump. That's 12 years from that story I told you about when, uh, you know, dealing with all the retail brokers. So 12 years later, I stepped out with a partner, we, we had um, accumulated some cash uh, over the years working in sales um, for the prior 10 years. And I thought that I understood the markets enough to go start a hedge fund. And it was uh, a, a potentially lucrative. It definitely was demand for people to manage money. And yes, it wasn't just about understanding the business. It was also, or understanding the markets, it was the business of a hedge fund. Getting the right documents, having the right lawyers, getting a board of trustees, getting physical space, getting your computer deck, you know, computer stack. All that took about six to nine months uh, and planning for six months before that. Uh, we came in and the lesson I learned there, you know, uh, best laid plans. We did a great job in the business, but I took my eye off the ball on the market. For the two years prior to that, we had a great call on the markets turning from 2000 to 2002 on the way down. 
credit spreads up, equity prices down. And my partner and I on the prop desk, the business we were at before we launched our hedge fund was very profitable as a standout. But we did not monitor the markets tight enough while we were building the business. We didn't account for the extra drain. And so when we put our first trade on in October 02, if anyone is near a Bloomberg or wants to look up stock prices and credit spreads, October 02 was the bottom of the market in that 10-year cycle, the bottom. And I didn't quite understand that because I was, again, focusing away. So the reason I bring that up is because our hedge fund was less than uh, successful. It was mediocre because we missed that turn. We were playing catch up. So we closed it about three or four years later. But what it did is, you know, that scar of um, missing, you know, that that being wrong was not a lesson that didn't go without uh, value. From that point on, I made sure I monitored the markets. So I knew exactly what the economic market and and players were doing. What's the regulatory environment like? What are the bond bond players doing? What are the equity players doing? Um, and and I built up a system that I still use today um, based on economics, markets, and players. I call it a compounding machine. It takes in all the information, and it gives me context about where every aspect of the market, not every aspect, but the major bones of the market. So it was a, it was a costly lesson, but it was one that has um, paid dividends since. So that was um, my hedge fund experience for about four or five years. And then from there... I said, well, what do I know well? Well, I learned risk. I learned about context in markets. So that's what I did for the next almost 10 years was do risk management at larger hedge funds. Yeah, that's super interesting. I'm just curious to hear. I've always had that little entrepreneur spirit. Did you gain anything from uh, from starting that uh, that business that helps you in, in your next uh, future jobs? I mean, on the on more the entrepreneurial side, I know you've been following the market and you were uh, you were great at it and you, you're still doing so. So does that did that help you in any of the other jobs to maybe understand how people run their own business and, and what you invest in anything like that? So it, what it did help me with was, well, the first part is um, support. So um, when I was starting my hedge fund, we interviewed someone who said, are you guys running a ghost book? And we weren't. Um, you know, we were like, well, we're not in the market. We thought we were auditing enough. So I guess what I would say is where we where I could have done better was getting more counsel uh, from other entrepreneurs or other people who started hedge funds. Um, which we did in the business side because we thought we knew the markets, but we didn't know the markets during a market setup. We knew markets once we were going, but we, so that's the one part about your entrepreneurial spirit. I would audit it while you're doing this, while you're in school, start smaller ventures, things that you can do um, while you have a day job. So that would be my suggestion. I think that while you're, uh, working, maybe you can join a uh, industry group and create some products or podcasts like you're doing now. So you have an idea about a skill, but you also know how to manage people, you know, about the tech stack. So you have integrated not just the subject matter expertise, but the platform to run it on. And the other headwinds that come in, such as maybe a registration process that's needed. Um, that would be my five cents is that do it on someone else's time. And maybe really quickly, 
like I, I, I'm curious to hear the the hedge fund was covering capital structure arbitrage. Can you can you just give a quick like uh, like a brief explanation of, of what that is and what what that strategy looks like? Sure. Um, so most companies uh, can raise companies raise capital by either issuing equity or or borrowing money. So they sell some of their ownership or they uh, give out promissory notes. And, and there are other things they can do like preferred stock or variations, but those are the two main sources uh, or capitalization. Over time, the value of those two different parts of the cap stack may become distorted for different reasons. Uh, let me give you an example. Apple issues bonds. Its stock is trading at, let's say, an 18 multiple to earnings. That's not necessarily cheap. It's probably pretty rich, but it's not super rich in the tech area. Its bonds are, say, trading as if they're AAA. Maybe there are 100 basis points over treasuries. That is fairly priced historically and maybe fair to richly priced based on other companies. So over time and today on a on a uh, horizontal, uh, on, on, a, on a vertical look across other companies. In 2002, that wasn't the case. You had equities way over, you know, the bubble of, of equities. So you yeah. had a lot of cable companies that were issued without much revenue. And the equity stack would have a $5 billion valuation on a stock trade net, like $6, low dollar price, but a load of about a billion shares. They also had debt. And the debt was trading at, say, 50 cents in the dollar. The reason in capital structure arbitrage, you came into every trade and you had two questions when you looked at an Apple company or a Broadcom company that was uh, trading at a very high yield on the bonds. What is it worth if someone buys it out for like, say, twice the equity value? And what is it worth if it goes bankrupt? That's called a stress test. And you put it through those two. And what often would happen is we were doing capital structure arbitrage because the debt was very cheap relative to the equity. It's hard to have a company that's worth 50 cents on the dollar in bonds which means that basically the debt is impaired. So let me, let, me, let me back up. In markets, we look to investors to price the value. What is it worth? Supply and demand and equity, right? Look at, look at crypto. Um, mm -hmm. It was worth a lot because people liked it and maybe people using leverage. And then all of a sudden it wasn't worth a lot when you look at you know, Dogecoin in particular. Hard to put a value on that. So that's supply and demand. But supply and demand goes out the window when a company goes bankrupt, it then goes to a contractual obligation of value. And most um, bankruptcy courts and processes have a strict allocation. The bonds have to get paid 100 cents before equities get nothing, get anything. So if a bond is trading at 50 cents on a dollar for say a, say a $2 billion valuation, all the bonds are worth 2 billion. All the equities are worth six billion and the bonds are trading at 50 cents on the dollar something's wrong 
you can't have um, you can't have that first priority bond worth more than the second priority equity. So it was a fascinating time to play with it. Um, we learned a lot because you learn how to value companies themselves, companies within a capital structure. It's complex. And I'm sure I've lost half the listeners already, but I will say that. <laughs> oh, it's all, it's all good stuff. I'll say that this will be relevant when we go through the next credit default cycle. You'll be hearing people talk about it when we go through the next recession, because then equities will be going down, bonds will be going down, and there'll be a, what we call a dislocation. Hedge funds love dislocations. Like, was it, was it like distressed situations? Yes. So like, when, like so bankruptcy about, filing? Yes. Um, except you sometimes had equities trading at stupid valuations. So the equity wasn't distressed, but yeah. the bonds were. So that's when you get in, you said, all right, I'm going to short the equity and buy the bonds. But there's a problem with that. The mark to market can go crazy on you. Okay. So your short can double and your bond won't move. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. That's why a lot of traders like to play to a catalyst. They want an event to help collapse that value. Okay. So you'll hear the term event trader. They want trade to a short-term catalyst. Two, two values are separated. And an event like a buyout or a bankruptcy will collapse them or invert them. That's what so they're then doing. Like most of like was it like small cap most of the time? No, no, they were huh? multi billion dollar capitalizations. Oh, okay. But how do you bet on an event like this to occur though? <laughs> That's seems there wasn't bit... so yeah. it, it wasn't an event. Well, there there was it's tough to bet yeah. on a bankruptcy. You could say that they're running out of cash. They have two quarters or three quarters of cash left. And you think that they can't raise money because their debt's trading at a 25% yield, you know, at 50 cents in the dollar. So mm -hmm. it's hard to raise 25% money. Um, no one's going to lend them money and no one's going to give them equity because who's going to invest in something where there's no cash and they're burning cash and they have, um, you know, their debt is, they're, they're already halfway one foot in the grave. So that's one way to do it. You could bet on their demise as they'll not be able to pay their coupon. Okay. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and uh, thank you, Mark. This is a lot of, uh, of good stuff. And just for, to remain conscious of time, we, uh, we know you have also a lot of other great experiences and, but maybe we could jump to your uh, one title in Yellington that's, that kind of strikes out when we look at, uh, at your profile, your role at Credit Suisse. So you were uh, global head of portfolio and markets advisory. So I'm curious to, Well, we're curious to hear a little bit what led you to uh, to join Credit Suisse after all these different opportunities you had and maybe discuss your your role at, at the firm. Great. Um, you're right. I've been at smaller firms um, ever since basically Dean Witter. Uh, and to go back to a bank, I never thought I would go back to a bank, but the role was very unique. And it allowed me a lot of autonomy to bring in my broad experiences uh, as a trader, as a strategist, as a salesman. And in addition, I had unique data. Credit Suisse had some of the best 
hedge fund positioning data. So instead of just looking at a company's 10Q or K or at the economic releases that would come from the Bureau of Labor Statistics um, in the U.S. or from the uh, Canadian government on your economic releases. We had data about who were people net long or short airlines, were people long or short oil. And so I got to work with that data and integrate it with publicly available data and share it with clients and have meetings about what we call sentiment data. And if there's anything that I wanna leave your viewers or your listeners with is that understanding how to use data is imperative for any job in the investment sphere, whether you're in sales, whether you're a project manager, whether you're a risk manager, a trader, a PM, you have to be able to have data about how, what the behavior of your target cohort, what they're doing, and you have to know data about how you're doing, how successful you're engaging them. And this job at Credit Swiss really crystallized that for me, and it gave me something I didn't think I was going to get, which is um, a great facility with being able to use data to make informed decisions. So that was the part that I got out of it. Again, another example of, you know, you don't know exactly what you can get in every role, but uh, be open and listen to what the opportunity is. Cause I didn't know what that was until I got there. Great. Perfect. Thank you for that. And also, so now, Let's move on to your time at 3IQ. I think a lot of listeners are going to be extremely uh, interested to hear about what 3IQ is, what your what your role is, and maybe maybe like just briefly like your your thoughts on on the space. Sure. Um, I joined 3IQ in March of 22 at a Credit Suisse, and uh, let's let's just uh, talk about the elephant in the room. Credit Suisse is no longer with us it fell under its own weight. It had depositors take away money. It fell about a year after I left. Um, and the reason I bring that up is that's why I went to a digital asset firm. So during my, I said, remember, we, I looked at data to make informed decisions. Over time, I realized that even some of the best hedge funds in the world couldn't make money. This year, most of the hedge funds, whether it be you know, Millennium, Citadel, you know, Baliasny, uh, Schoenfeld, X's point, you know, if they're making double digits, it's unusual. Most of them are in the mid single digits on returns, even though NASDAQ's up, um, you know, 26% or so, S&P's up, I don't know, 18 or uh, I don't know the exact number. They have, it's been tough to make. And the reason why is because over the past two decades, central governments have accumulated most of the money creation ability. They are directing the allocation of money, whether it be fewer banks, more central bank um, involvements. And given that was the case and the degree of debt, we talked about data, there's another D word. The degree of global debt out there has really become a powerful influence on markets. And I came with 3IQ because I think Bitcoin is outside of that sphere of influence of central banks. And I think it's a constructive monetary layer that can be used over the next several decades to help rebuild and absorb what is clearly gonna happen 
which is a series of defaults um, over the next uh, 10, 15 years. So I'm here because just like in 1971, when Nixon broke the gold standard, everyone thought it was you know doomed for the banks because all the emerging market companies, countries started to default as the dollar got stronger. A window opened when that door closed on the banks. It was called FX trading. FX trading never existed in 1971. Everything was pegged to the dollar. But when you had that, that break, all of a sudden people had to link all these currencies together that were depegged. So I think we're going to have a tremendous default cycle like we've never seen. But I think that we're going to have a tremendous opportunity. And the two words that I say get familiar and fossil with it is get familiar with how to use data and understand the impact that debt has on your industry, your country, um, and your personal uh, income opportunities. Those are the two major factors that I think will, will drive risk and opportunity you know, in the medium and, and long term. And so do, do you see cryptocurrency as sort of a, an edge and maybe what's your outlook in the, in the next couple of months, year, you know, the economy has, has seen better days and we're pretty young. So we've pretty much only been in a, in a bull market except the last year or so. So mm -hmm. I'm just curious, curious to hear your thoughts on, uh, on that going forward. So the word crypto does speak, it's, it's a right word because cryptography is underlying the uh, security function and, you know, cryptography is, uh, you know, the sharing of messages in the presence of an adversary. So that's it. It's, it's, that's 5,000 years ago. That's what people did. Um, and today it's started with Satoshi Nakamoto, the synonymously named um, creator of Bitcoin, which is the only decentralized blockchain out there fully decentralized. There's no foundation behind it. The next, you know, probably is Ethereum after that. But Bitcoin is a store of value. It is a growing monetary layer that will be built on later. And it solves what we call the trilemma of, um, especially on security and decentralization. And it's scaling. Its ability to build will come later. Think of it like um, just one of the best marble rocks out there and it, and it takes a fine chisel and an artisan to really create on top of it but once it does the integrity of that blockchain is all but immutable so what, what does it mean for bull and bear markets last year there were bad actors who created fraudulent platforms and we're reading about it in, in the news michael lewis i told you i'd bring it back to uh Salman Brothers, I was on the floor with Michael Lewis in 1986. And that was his first book called Liar's Poker. So I worked on that floor in that environment. I followed his books. I think he's an excellent writer. I think this book, he got a little wrong um, as far as uh, understanding the business and SBF. SBF's business, FTX, was a fraud. They moved billions of dollars around between clients' accounts and his hedge fund. That is a taking of money. It's just not opinion. It's a fact. It is locked in the Ethereum blockchain. So last year was about the failure of people, but the protocols performed. Bitcoin minted every 10 minutes. It does what it does. The only thing that happened last year was that the prices got pumped up beyond 
fair value because of all the leverage and and the FOMO that was going on. It broke. We had our default cycle. We're now coming out the other end. I th I think it's a good time to get curious about blockchains right now, especially Bitcoin and Ethereum. They account for over 60% of the entire 10, 20,000 coins. So you don't have to do too much math to know if you want to spend some time about what's going to work, you probably want to focus on those two. Great, thanks. And I'd, I'd be curious to hear about your role specifically at 3IQ. So what's what's your title? What what, what does the role entail? Uh, I'm head of research. And, yeah. and so our job, my job and my team, uh, and I have an uh, excellent uh, analyst and and a marketer that helps us um, gather and disseminate information is, is to communicate the opportunities and risks for especially Bitcoin and Ethereum. But given my background, I've also tried to uh, share the information with traditional finance. We call them TradFi. So in the, so the traditional broker who has stocks, bonds, and, and mutual funds how are they ever going to convince and why should they or should they someone to buy Bitcoin, Ethereum after all the mess that happened last year? So we try to identify and share the problem in traditional finance, the amount of debt that's out there. We try to talk about the remedy of Bitcoin, the integrity of the protocol that even JP Morgan is adopting and building on Ethereum and the urgency and I think last March or this past March, when you saw four banks go under over a weekend with, you know, people, people lining up outside their bank like it was 1929. Like sometimes we don't realize the regime we're in, but we're there. People, some people couldn't get their money. So it's not your money once in a bank. You're actually lending it to them. So what I love about it for you guys, you said you've never been in a you know bear market. Strap it on, folks. It's coming and you're going to learn a lot. You're going to be better for it. I'm learning. So we're doing this together because we haven't had this type of stuff in quite a while. Um, but there are going to be rolling defaults. It's not going to be terrible, but it's coming. And to do the work and again, back to data, getting source data, understanding, seeing that there were 15,000 banks when I started in the market, there are 8,000 now. I think they're going to less than 500 in five or 10 years. And the Fed wants to do it. So money and banking and finance, all changing. Yeah, well, that's definitely definitely a lot of waves coming our way. But uh, I think it's going to be the best time to learn for us. And Mark, I'm just curious to hear, uh, you mentioned earlier a bit, the fair value of Bitcoin. You know, at school, we're taught uh, all the different valuation methods to evaluate a stock or how to look at a bond and the credit risk, for example. But how would you like value cryptocurrency in, in, in simple terms? And what how do you assess value to something like this? So the two ways they do it, and uh, cash flow is a big one for bonds and for equities, you know, the dividend, dividend discount model. Um, but for some companies that don't have um, cash, like a growth company, they will look at, things like clients or, you know, revenue, even if they're burning money, you know, they don't have a net net income. So for Bitcoin um, and for some others, they look at something called the network effect, 
when they'll say, how big is the network? Um, what is the expected value of the network? And you can kind of look at, you know, how Google might've been priced before they did ads back in the day when they were just doing um, uh, searches. So that might be an analogy. So there's a, there is a formula for the network effect, how, we, how large a network and what's it worth. The other one, which is a simpler one and really straightforward and blunt is saying, is gold a store of value? People believe it is. Is it, does it have a value? It does. It's about 10, 11 trillion. 60% of that is in bullion. The other part is in gold, is in jewelry. So somewhere between six and 10 trillion, six and 12 trillion dollars. Can Bitcoin be that store of value? It's now 4% of gold. So do people think it's going to be 50 to 100% of gold? That would be one way. So you can, then you have to then say, does Bitcoin have the qualities of, of money? Is it portable? Is it uh, recognizable? Is it, uh, does it hold over time? And so many people, and I'm one of them, believe that it actually does have the qualities of gold. Um, so, so those are two main ones. And then Ethereum has more cash flow. So people will look at, um, you know, the, uh, the money produced on the Ethereum chain and the fact that it now carries about a 4% yield. So people think that'll be attracting a lot of investors um, who can now value it because it, um, it has distribution of cash flow, not just uh, fees like what Bitcoin has. And Rick, I was curious to hear too. I mean, obviously now you're, you're head of research. You've been through a lot in your career, a lot of, a lot of research, a lot of data aggregation. So how, I was curious to hear, how, how do you find your edge? You know, how do you, how do you extract insights out of, out of really an overload of data that, that we're faced with today in 2023? Uh, I take, so that probably started in, in 2008 or so when the world was starting, was on fire and information was coming out quickly. So I took every bit of information as it related to my business into three buckets, economics, something like a change in the global growth or, or US or Canadian GDP or employment number. So in, in economic stat, that's one. The other one is market data. What's the price of the tenure? What are, what are markets doing? Price, volume, et cetera. And then the third one are the players. I'd look to see what is the, um, incentive structures, are they changing? And some of the emergent players were central banks. They were changing rules. So I watched how they would communicate. They were communicating more frequently. You got to watch out for that because that means that things are changing, not in the data. Um, and then I would um, look at slower moving dynamics like demographics and things like that. So fast moving and slow moving dynamics of players. Within that model, I look at what consensus is and is something not in consensus. So I have to build a model of my own and look at certain um, rates of change, people call it stocks and flow. Stocks and flow is an odd misunderstood concept because people think of stocks like equities and bonds. In a market, stocks and flows refers to think of a cupboard in your kitchen, you know, the, the fun one that has like, you know, your rich crackers and, and your, and your oatmeal cookies and, you know, and maybe your beer. So that's your, that's your cupboard. Sometimes 
when you open it, the stock of the cupboard is how many rich crackers, how many oatmeal cookies, and how many six packs of beer do I have? So it's stocked full of good stuff. Now you open up the next day and it's gone. It means it's flowed out the door. Your brother, your sister took it. So when we look at a market, we look at the stock and flow. How big is it? And what's the rate of change? We look at that all day, every day across all markets. And that is a, is a I won't say an edge, but that is table stakes to help develop an edge on what's happening in markets. That's that's amazing advice for us and to uh, to all our listeners. And maybe before uh, before we close it off, Mark, not everyone goes from uh, being an English major to the bond floor to starting an edge fund to uh, to like, occupying a top role at Credit Suisse and now being a head of research at a digital asset firm. Do you have any final advice for for students looking to follow a similar career path or hope for a career just like yours? Uh, I, I wouldn't wish my career on anybody. No, just, just, just kidding. Um, to have an interesting life and, and a, um, a career, figure out what you're good at. What are you good at? Not what do you want to be? And the word passion is, is overused. I think passion is, you know, is great and fiery, but it won't carry the day. How are you wired? Are you a thoughtful person? Are you a person who likes to get out in front of people and speak? How do you operate? And then the next part back to data is develop your own curation process of information and data. You are being, we are all being fed just a bunch of pablum all day, every day, right? It's fun to scroll, get your own data source, almost create your own newspaper once a week, pull it down and write about it. In other words, observe, and then maybe make notes about what you're seeing. That's, I think, the best way to, to, for you to distill the mountain of information you take in and make sense of it. That's helped me figure out where I should be and, like, and not follow certain things that I wouldn't be successful at. Over time. Didn't figure it out right away. <laughs> figure it out <laughs> over time. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that's some really great advice. And, you know, I mean, over the last half hour, I know I've learned a lot. I know I hope our, our viewers have too. So we really appreciate you coming on, Mark. Uh, you know, it was, it was a great time and we're super happy to hear about, hear about your career and, and, and your advice. Pleasure, Matthew. Thanks a lot. And Olivier, thank you very much too. All right. Bye-bye.